Well, good morning. It's my first time being here on a Sunday morning outside, so it's kind of a great uh, vantage point to see a lot of the faces that I haven't seen in a long time. And um, one thing I noticed is that there are a bunch of interactions that I have with a lot of you week in, week out, that uh, I didn't know how much they meant to me until we didn't have them. So treasure these moments, these time, this time that we have together, and uh, I pray that it will be uh, continually edifying to us. But uh, as far as today's sermon text, as we were thinking through the, um, just the passages, I was thinking through the passages that we were, I was going to address today during corporate worship, my heart was heavy. And it's heavy because I'm burdened because of the text's gravity. And I think of a parade of names, both people that I've known and people that um, I've, I've known personally and then those who I've known and seen from a distance. And I think of how saddened I am that many of these people who love the Lord earnestly, who served God faithfully, have fallen or defaulted morally along the way. In my younger years, I downplayed these incidences because I assumed one of two things. First, I assumed that these people probably weren't saved to begin with, and so I just sort of downplayed it. Or I assumed that one day people intentionally chose to walk away from Christ in his ways. But as I grew a little bit older, I recognized the fact that these were not the bad people I thought they were. I was, I'm convinced that many of the people that I was thinking through do, in fact, love the Lord, and they serve Christ's bride vigorously. But as these situations pile up around us, especially among Christian leaders, I'm forced to think about that something is broken. Something is not the way it ought to be. And I think this passage before us really helps us begin to understand at least one aspect of how we can begin to do better in this way, in serving and loving and caring for each other. And so this reminds me of a time when I was putting up a garage door opener in my house. It's my first time doing it, and so I did what any of you guys would do. I called up a friend who, it was also his first time putting up a garage door opener in a house. So what he did is the only thing that he, that he could do is he just was rigorously like rehearsing the instructions like line by line to me. And then uh, after a while, because there was like a thousand steps, we were at about step 500. I started getting some confidence, you know, I got my strut. You know, I, I started to try, try to jump ahead a little bit, but my friend who had the very words of the maker had given to us to get to the promised land that was a garage door that would open with the touch of a button. He said, hey, that's not the way to go. That's not what we should be doing. This is not according to the plan. My buddy corrected me. And this is illustrative of the Christian life, is it not? My friend who held the words of the maker in his hands, he didn't demean me, but he encouraged me to get back into the way the designer had set before us for this to work. So although the issues of life are often far more complex, this is an example of how this text prompts us to understand discipline. Discipline is often assumed that it's kicking someone out of the church because of their behavior or stern criticism, or strictly punishment. But this text lets us know that true discipline emerges from deep commitment and love. So the first six verses, they help us to understand the call 
to faithfulness. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So one of the most important lessons that we can all learn for studying the Bible is that, you know, context is everything. It's the best tool we have for understanding in our belts. And so if you don't understand something, you've got to read, you know, earlier and then read later. And then hopefully the part that you're misunderstanding or not understanding will come into focus. So verse 1 begins with a therefore. And this chapter then, chapter 12, is a continuation of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a virtual parade of the Old Testament greats, is how I often think about it. It includes stories of Abel, who uh, was a faithful son of Adam and Eve. Enoch, who was taken up so that he would not see death. Abraham, the great patriarch. And so we arrive at chapter 12 in verse 1, and we see that there's this 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 cloud of witnesses. And could you imagine this? We're actually surrounded by Moses who brought God's people out of Egypt and who was pinned between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, and then God had to intervene. He made a way out of no way. We're surrounded by David, who stood up to the great Goliath, and he fought you know, because God would fight his battles for him. And we're surrounded by Samson, who defended God's people in the face of a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. This is awesome. You guys are far away, so I can't hear you. So, but this is awesome. I feel like I'm like way up here and like, you know, in the sea. <laughs> I'm like, anyway, I love you guys, but you're just really far away. And so this is the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. These are the examples of faith that we have. And so the question is, what are they telling us to do? Well, they say two things. One, to lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and also to run with endurance the race that is set before us. During the first century, runners would enter into the Colosseum with these like super gaudy, like ridiculously flowing robes. But <laughs> yeah, and then um, they would strip those robes, and then they would run the race almost wearing like barely anything because they were throwing off every hindrance and every weight. And this is the idea that the readers would have as they were reading this text: throwing off every weight and hindrance. Oh, we know what that looks like: throwing off everything that could hinder us and running the race effectively and efficiently. So our author gives us the specifics of laying aside every sin which clings so closely and suffice it to say that sin is like running the, ri- the race of the mission of God with a parachute. It complicates being directed by the Holy Spirit. It drives us away from God's word. It alienates us from God's people. These hindrances make us unable to run the race the way the Lord intends, the way the one who has given us the instructions has instructed us to do. And this word run, it's simple to understand. It's to run continuously, but it's very challenging to actually do. So I used to be a sprinter back in my day. You know, everyone has their stories of back when we used to be fit and strong and run fast and everything like that. And sprints were very easy. You have a person who would, you know, get up there and have a starting gun, and you would, he would shoot it, and then you would just run for 100 meters or 200 meters, and it was very quick and painless, but this is not the Christian life. The Christian life is more of like a marathon. 
We have to endure. We have to stay faithful. We have to continue on in the race. And so the, 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 the question becomes, what is the strategy to endure faithfully in the race? Verse 2 gives us a, a, a clue here. It gives us the instructions that we should look to to endure and to help us understand the race that's now set before us. And the, and the people in this hall of faith from verse 11, the people who are this cloud of witnesses, they are referenced and we can like marvel at them and the great things that they've done because they are examples of God, you know, of faithfulness. And it's, but it's also, it's not quite that though. That's a good thing, but that's not quite what the text is getting at in verse 2 that I'll read in just a moment. And it's not also that the cloud of witnesses is simply surrounding us, cheering for us. Walter, Walter. I mean, that'd be cool to have like Samson cheering for you, but that's not the point either. What they're doing is they're pointing us to Jesus. Verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I find it intriguing that the text tells us to run continuously, but our example is of a man who sat down. Does that strike anybody else as odd? I heard somebody in the back. Yes, that is odd to me too. How is he our example? Well, this is the thing. Jesus is the initiator, yes, but he's also the perfecter of our faith. And that's, like, that's unlike any other Old Testament priest. One of the ways that the Bible tells us about who Jesus is, is as prophet, priest, and king. So the Old Testament priest is what this is picking up on. It's saying that Jesus is unlike any other priest because unlike the Old Testament priest who had to sacrifice and sacrifice, the people would continue to sin and he had to sacrifice again. Jesus finished the job. Jesus is the author He's also the perfecter, the sustainer of our faith. Jesus is not just the door that we walk through to get into the house where God's people are. He's actually the house itself. He's the door also. We dwell in him. We find our existence in him. We find our joy in him, our hope in him. He's the author and the sustainer. The one who endured perfectly and finished the job. Beloved, this is why we stick close to Jesus. Because he's done the impossible. He's done the impossible. And I'm glad today that God does not judge me based upon my ability to run continuously, but he judges me based upon the merit of the one who ran perfectly. And because of his perfected running, he sat down. I can't get over that, he, uh, how he finished the job. And when he said on the cross, it was finished, it was done. And so I'm reminded of the Cameron crazies. Those kids, they never sit down until obviously the, the, the victory is won and they finally sit down in those expensive seats that they got. I just had to get a Duke reference in real quick. So verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners, sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The author continues to reinforce the need to press into Jesus in an ongoing manner. And for some of us, the idea of continuing to press into Jesus seems a bit strange. But Jesus is not simply facts to be mastered. He's not a puzzle to put together and then to be set aside. He's a person. 
And as you walk through the difficulties of life, whatever season you're in, he's with you. He's there. He's hanging with you. This is the Jesus who is so personal to us. He meets you where you are. And so this is wonderful. And then we continue in verse 4. He says, if, if uh, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of, of shedding your blood, verse 5, and have you, have you forgotten the exhortation that has addressed you as sons? My son, do not, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So this verse, these verses um, 5 and 6 are actually uh, an excerpt from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 12, 11 and 12. And so the next couple of verses in this chapter we're in sort of does an exposition of that. And so this is a fantastic help for us to understand what this little vignette from Proverbs is telling us. So God's discipline combines the concepts of training, instruction, guidance, reproof, and correction. So correction and discipline, they don't, they don't happen because we are abandoned by God, as these verses tells us. It's the reverse. It's because we're loved by God. When many of us hear uh, discipline, we have a very negative connotation of it. But verse 6 reminds us, look at this, those he loves, he disciplines he corrects everyone he accepts as a child. So I, um, I've learned a lot from my brothers and sisters who are of Japanese background, you know, on this idea of enduring and suffering. And unlike many Westerners or Americans in particular, we assume that the Savior is the means of helping us avoid trouble and avoid sufferings. But rather, what I've learned from them is that Jesus is the bruised reed, the bent nail that identifies with our sufferings and walks victoriously in them with us. So he's not necessary to help you avoid it. He's there to walk beside you as you are going through the difficulties of life. And this is a wonderful gift that we have a God, a Savior, who just doesn't just die on the cross, rise again, and it's through with us, but he actually wants to be with you. Let him into the struggle. Let him into the difficulty as you're in the midst of the moment where you're being pressed in your faith, pressed in your just resolve. The Savior is walking with you. And so this is great news. So verses 7 and 8 help us understand the necessity of discipline. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is, is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. So again, we see that, that the discipline is not negative. It's a positive thing because it assumes that we're children of God. And so the uh, ACSB, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation, I think is very helpful in this first clause of, of verse 7 because it helps to demonstrate the word discipline is used more broadly than we're accustomed to using it. The ACSB says to endure suffering as discipline. So the wording establishes a link between suffering and restorative discipline. And this is especially related to suffering with that, that's, that's uh, circumstantial and not necessarily punitive. So, for example, when you get a terrible diagnosis, 
when a tragedy takes a life, when a treasured relationship crumbles beneath your feet, endure suffering as discipline. And although God is not the cause of this kind of suffering, he, uh, he understands that. And in the midst of this kind of suffering, God can use it to forge something wonderful in us. And so this is what we have to do in these moments is to endure suffering as discipline. There's a common goal in discipline and suffering in the language of the text because it's both, uh, it's, and it, it's both the same for uh, suffering and discipline. And the goal is to be presented faithful and mature before God. So the text is calling us to, to utilize every life circumstance to call us to greater faithfulness. Using every life circumstance to call us to greater faithfulness. In fact, I mean, I'll be honest with you. If I'm going through a trial in my life, my, life, my, my prayer is to, it's like, Lord, let me not waste this suffering that I'm going through so that I don't learn anything from it. Let me just not walk through it. I mean, granted, I'm praying that it will go away fast, that I would, that I would learn the lesson quickly so I can get, so I can get on with it. But my, my, I, I pray that. I mean, I honestly, dude, I'm just being honest with you. Like, I, I'm, I try not to waste any affliction because that's an opportunity for, for the Lord to forge something beautiful in us. And so a significant question arises from these two verses. And it's, that, and, it's, and it's basically saying, what is your response to discipline? What is your response to these sufferings? You know, does it help us point out and affirm the fact that you are a legitimate child of God? Well, do, you, do difficult circumstances cause you to look to the one who endured on your behalf? Do you allow the Holy Spirit to correct you and your actions? Do you allow the word of God to correct your desires when they're out of step with God's will? Do you, you know, when you're admonished by our brother or sister, do you repent of your actions? This is the activity of those who are sons and daughters of the king. The great reformer Martin Luther, he said that we are simultaneously just, yet a sinner. This means that because of Christ's work on our behalf, we are seen by God as righteous if you trusted him, but we are continually trying to act out our righteousness. And as a result, discipline and correction are a normal part of the Christian life. And if you're, if you're following these activities that characterize a Christian life and we're still sort of struggling with the things that we are tempted to stumble upon sin-wise, you know, yes, we sin, unfortunately, but we are allowing ourselves to be corrected by the Holy Spirit. We allow ourselves to be corrected by our brothers and sisters. We open ourselves up to be corrected by the Word of God. And then we are grieved over the way that we acted or the way that we did not act according to God's design. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is basic Christianity. We have not uh, reached the point where we are sinless, and so we have to begin to open ourselves up to be corrected, to be sharpened, to be admonished in these good and powerful ways from the Lord through the Holy Spirit's work in our life for those who are believers, and then also through the, 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 the body of Christ and so on and so forth. This is just basic Christianity. This is nothing crazy. And then in verses 9 and 10, it talks about how it helps us understand how discipline is from a loving father, which we've highlighted a couple times already. It says this, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? 
for they, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. These verses are so good, they assume that the, on the whole, earthly children respect and obey their fathers despite their shortcomings. But with that said, how much more should we love and welcome the perfect discipline from our heavenly father? And so as kind of an aside, these verses, they help us understand that God's design for parental, oh my goodness, God's design for parental authority is a foretaste of uh, sort of God's discipline in this sense. The idea is that a child who is very literal in their understanding has their earthly parents as visible examples of authority. And they learn that authority flows out of a parent's love for them, and then they'll be easy, more easily able to transfer that obedience to authority to their loving and perfectly, perfect Heavenly Father. This is the good, sort of wonderful task of parenting, so don't lose heart, parents. And I'm preaching to myself. Stay strong, run faithfully, because there's something wonderful at stake. There's a great picture there for you. So verse 11 helps us to understand the benefits of discipline. It says, for the, for, the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the use of the agricultural metaphor is strategic here because it requires work that's often backbreaking to reap a harvest. And so this is, a, but when the harvest comes, it's a wonderful thing. And so we, we do the work of cultivating a community in a relationship with God that can correct us. This cloud of witnesses metaphor is, yes, it's, it's both those who are the heroes of the past who are helping to encourage us to faithfulness, but it's also the, the, the reality of the people that you're surrounded by right now. This is the means or a means that God has given us to help us run faithfully. Theologically, image bearers of God are designed uh, for community. And in that context of community, discipline should be a regular occurrence. And this is the first step for Christians to not end up on some list of people who have morally defaulted. Not that, not that there's some list out there, but you guys get what I'm saying. This is the, it's each other also, in addition to the word, in addition to the Holy Spirit, that we should be, you know, uh, continuously helping each other to walk faithfully in the Lord Jesus. Surrounding yourself with believers who you've let into your life and let them regularly, and, and invite them regularly to, to correct you is a wonderful thing. And this goes for the newest Christian all the way to the elders. From the newest Christian all the way to the elders, because even the pastors of a church are not yet glorified. And so we all need this. This is good for all of us. This should be a regular thing that we're encouraging each other, asking each other questions, making sure that we're, you know, uh, like loving each other enough, loving each other enough to tell each other the truth about how we're missing God's best for us. You're not a good friend or brother or sister in Christ if you're letting somebody run around not doing God's best for them if we actually believe that the book, uh, this book, the Bible, has God's best for us. You're letting them down. And so this is the consistent encouragement and love that we ought to, to offer and receive as a part of being a part of the body of Christ. Surround yourself with people who can do that for you. And then, you know, when I was in high school, I remember... Uh, 
someone we considered a family friend, he knocked me out with gas. And then he took a knife. He cut me open. He sewed this hole back together that he intentionally made, and we paid him thousands of dollars. It was a knee surgery. The cut that he made was for the sake of me growing stronger because the cut was made. And so this is what we ought to be doing as Christians. We ought to be those who offer these prayerfully strategic uh, sort of cuts to each other so that we can grow each other back up stronger than before we were admonishing each other. This is the way the body of Christ ought to work. We don't simply bludgeon each other just to beat each other to a pulp. That's not the point. The point is restoration, restoring a brother and sister to a, uh, a way that they're honoring God and honoring the body of Christ with their actions. Some of us make this hard, though. And if you're thinking it's the person next to you, hmm, the Holy Spirit needs to work on you, too. So it might be them, but I'm just saying you got problems as well. That's Bible. That's not Walter. And so what we have to do is to continue to dedicate ourselves to this process, dedicate ourselves to each other, dedicate ourselves to the fact that if somebody is acting outside of the word of God, they're not finding true joy. They might be finding pleasure for a moment, but then the hook that the adversary is using to get them, well, they'll feel it. But what we have to do is continually sort of warn each other and encourage each other of that fact. And so verses 11 and 12 are our final exhortation to faithfulness. It says, therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that the, uh, so, so what is lame may not be put out of joint, and, but rather be healed. Renew your commitment to run the race faithfully today. Renew your commitment to running this race in a community today. Completing the race requires the work of being strengthened by discipline. And which this assumes that you have a cloud of witnesses, both the historic witnesses and also the brothers and sisters around you today, to help you walk faithfully, admonishing, admonishing one another towards faithfulness in Jesus. And so just as, a, as we close today, I, I want to walk through a couple sort of examples of how this can be done. So there's the formative discipline that we all sort of put ourselves under biblical teaching, biblical preaching, you know, exposing ourselves and our lives to others. And so this is the ongoing sort of measures that we take to not fall into a pit of despair and destruction morally. And also there's corrective discipline. There's the in, in, internal corrective discipline by the Holy Spirit who illumines our eyes to the fact that we are walking out of step with God's plan. Then there's the external correction that we read about in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, which is so very helpful of a, a helpful roadmap. But I want to just walk through this very quickly today as we, as we close. The first step is to admonish a brother or sister alone. In verse 15, it says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and rebuke them in private. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother or your sister back. And so this type of correction, again, should be the status quo, the pattern, what we assume should be the regular sort of work that we do in our small groups and on Sunday mornings and you know, as we make phone calls and we send an endless number of voxes to each other. I think Voxer like, is, remains open in the triangle because of us. We, we tear Voxer up. And all the elders, they, they're like the, the, the king sort of Voxerers. They all have Voxer Pro. 
I haven't ascended to that, to that level yet. So uh, anyway, maybe it comes along with the uh, eldership. Anyway, just my own musings. But encouraging friends to love each other well, challenging them as you are playing sports, challenging them as they're parenting and marriage and their jobs to be faithful in, 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 in all that they do, encouraging spouses, encouraging each other to be faithful in their parenting. And so this is the way we ought to be living. And then our hope is that, again, the person says, you're right. The scriptures are speaking to this. And they turn from their sin and their folly, and then you've you know, got your, your, your uh, brother or sister restored. But it's important for us to add that if you're not genuinely broken over the sin of your brother and sister that you're confronting, you're not ready to admonish them yet. Because the point is not to break them down, but to build them up. But in some cases, that first step is not, does not take. So we have verse 16. It says, but if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, and, and, and that, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so prayerfully bringing another party uh, is important in this step. And, so, and, and what we have to do is remain humble and prayerful together, searching our hearts, that, making sure that we're, uh, that we're doing it for the right motivations, and then we, we prayerfully go forward and, and do this. And this is not the time where you go to a bunch of other people in your growth group and say, hey, pray for me. I'm getting ready to go confront so-and-so about sin. This should be done quietly. We're not trying to embarrass anybody. And that's more of you just showing off than actually helping your brother or sister. So go prayerfully. Take those two and then go do the work of the Lord. And so hopefully the person says, hey, this is something I shouldn't be doing, and you've regained your brother and sister. But there's moments where they don't repent. Then we have step three. Verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen, tell the church. And we often assume that church discipline sort of starts here, that discipline in the body starts here. But the reality is that this is, you know, we start at verse 15, and verse 15 should be this constant and ongoing reality, but then, you know, only sometimes we get to verse 17. And I hope no one gets there, but my hope is that they would repent. But without repentance, they are removed from church membership because the church can no longer confirm their commitment to Christ over their own desires. But verse 17 in the second half is very, very helpful. It says, and if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be uh, be, be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Basically, treat them as they're not a Christian. And so we often assume this means sort of ostracizing people, treating them like, you know, uh, like the tax collector, treating them like dirt, you know, pushing them away like second-class citizens. But let rem me remind you that the Lord ate and dined with tax collectors and sinners. Let me remind you today that he ultimately died so that they might and you might enter into the kingdom. So in short, the church shouldn't just be, shouldn't just sort of push them away, but share the gospel with them, be missional with them, engage them with the, with the good news of Jesus Christ, because we have to show that the treasure of Jesus is more valuable than that thing that they're holding on to. So that's the hope there. That's where we end here. And so today, as I, as I preach, I understand I'm welcoming a whole bunch of y'all to sort of correct me. And I'm like, oh man, that's why I'm going to get in my car and go home real quick. <laughs> I'm just joking. But the reality is, is that we all need it. We all need each other. And I think that's one thing that we've lost. 
This is, this is the reason why the list of names is so long that you're sort of, that's racing through your minds. Well, what happened to them? They didn't have anybody around them who loved them enough to tell them the truth. The truth, not just any truth, but the truth of God's word. And so, and I don't care how influential somebody is. I don't care how many Twitter followers you have or Instagram, whatever the people do on there. They follow you, they, they like you, what do they do? I don't know. Yeah, the thing. That, yeah, I, whatever. You have to be a person under authority, and it's the authority of God's word that we as the body of Christ continually to re, continue to remind each other of on a daily basis because we are prone to wonder. And so may it be that at Imago Day Church that we're a people who continually love each other enough to receive and give discipline to each other by extending loving correction uh, as a community, admonishing each other vigorously because we are trying to joyfully follow the statutes of our God. And may it be so. I, I want to end with a word of prayer. Does this help us to allow these, this passage and its truth to sink into us? Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. You're the loving God who created us. And because you've created us, Lord, you know how this life ought to be lived. And sometimes that life is counter to the culture in which we live. Sometimes that the, the, the ways that you call us to, to be are, are challenging, God. And, and, and we thank you that you haven't left us alone to pursue obedience. You've given us the word, the spirit, each other. And God, as we try to live out this perfect law that you've given us as imperfect people, we just ask for your help. Help us, Lord, because we need you. We're lost without you. We're in need of so much grace, but God, there is more grace in you than sin in us, as our pastor reminds us often. And God, we just thank you for this time together and your word that's so vibrant, alive, and active, Lord. I pray that you would uh, encourage us once more with it today. Allow it to live in each one of us this week. We pray this in your name. Amen.